glad you're here. We're here today on the last sermon in our series called Age of Kings. We're going to finish it up today and start something new next week. But I'm really excited about the message we have today, even though it's a difficult message. What we're going to talk about today is hard, but necessary. And just to kind of remind you this time period we're talking about here, we're talking about this unique period of time in the ancient world, not necessarily unique because of how it was different than everything else, but because of what we know about it. It's one of those periods of history that we don't study near as much as we should, and we've got tons of information from it. We have six biblical books written just on the history of this time period, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. But that's not all. We also have during this time all those books in the Old Testament where it seems like just men are yelling at each other because of the sins of their country and what's happening. The prophets, both major and minor, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Hosea and Jonah and all these prophets that, you know, Malachi and Zephaniah and Zechariah and all happens during the same time period. And so you've got all these books in the Old Testament. First, second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, the prophets talking about this period of time. And here's what's kind of interesting about it. It's not the best time in the history of Israel. There, there's a short moment, a glimmer of hope at the beginning of the time frame, but then it goes south very quickly. For 500 years, the nation of Israel existed without any sort of king and there was no age of kings because they didn't have any. And in fact, during that time frame, they didn't need one. They were a nation ruled by law. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. It's an astonishing fact that that far back you had this nation run by laws. And it wasn't until almost 3,000 years later or over 3,000 years later when in 1776, a group of people in this country decided that they would be the next major nation governed completely by law, without a sovereign, without a king. So you have this situation where they're 500 years, they're without a king, and then all of a sudden they get jealous of all the other nations. And they're out having conversations with people, and they find out the other nations have these kings and these great kings, and we'd like to have a king. And so they talk to Samuel, and they say, we need a king. And he says, no, you don't. When you get a king, you'll act like a king, but we want a king. Well, everybody else has got a king. Well, so-and-so's got a king. Well, that country's got a king. We need a king. And finally, because of the hardness of their heart, God gives them what they want. You know, I could do a whole sermon on the fact that there are often times when God gives us what we want to realize it's not what we need. They want a king and they get one. And they probably should have had a clue right off the bat because the first king is a disaster. What was his name? Saul. Disaster. He looked the part. Everybody thought he'd be great, but he was terrible. After Saul, he replaces him with who? Who's the second king? David, right? I heard somebody whisper it. David. They don't want to be wrong, right? David was the second king and David was good or bad. He was good for the most part, except for that little problem with Bathsheba and civil war with his own son and uh, family breaking apart. But he still, compared to other kings, he was the best. After David came Solomon, and Solomon had a good reign, except 
He had that whole thing where he married foreign wives and had too many wives. By the way, you know how many too many wives is? Two, right? Two is too many wives. How many did Solomon have? Some of you are going to in trouble with the answer. I heard a one out there and that. I do not want to be at that lunch table today. All right. How many wives did Solomon have? More than two, right? Between wives and concubines, I mean, really, who keeps count of all these kind of things? Somewhere around a thousand. That caused some problems. When he gets through being king, his son takes over and says he's going to take charge, and he ends up dividing the country And for the next several hundred years, both countries are under the leadership of kings who act like kings. They don't think the law applies to them. They don't think that what they're doing is necessarily wrong because they're king and kings can do no wrongs. In fact, you have this kind of interplay where they seem to think because they make the laws, they can break the laws. Now, I understand that a little bit. I mean, I'm a dad. And for instance, this is just a for instance, in our house, one of the laws is you don't drink out of the two liter bottle. Amen. Can I get an amen out there? Right. And my kids follow that rule really well. My wife follows that rule really well. You know who doesn't follow that rule? Me, right? Susan's not in here, is she? I'm just making sure my confession time she's. I think she's got ETC today. So, you know, y'all don't tell her, please. All right. Because, you know, I'm the king. It's my lair. I've, I've, you know, if I want some Diet Dr. Pepper right now, there is no need to go through the hassle of cup and ice. Amen. Guys, can I get an amen? Somewhere. Some of you just gave an amen and never done it before. But there we go. Right. We can make the rules, we can break them. And so you have these kings and they make all kinds of rules and they break all kinds of rules and they end up in this kind of place where they are calling the shots, making all the decisions and they're doing it without regard for anybody else but themselves. In fact, just kind of an important point to understand at the very beginning before we get, we're going to get to a Bible story here in a minute, is that kings of Israel and kings in general want autonomy without accountability. They want to be able to make the decisions in their lives without anybody telling them whether it's right or wrong. And you see that throughout the Old Testament, throughout this period of the kings. They want to make the decisions without anybody else telling them what to do. And when they make it, they don't want to be accountable for the decisions that they've made. Now, aren't you glad our politicians have moved past that? Be careful casting stones. We're coming back to you in a minute. All right. They want autonomy without accountability. I am the king. I make these decisions. This is what I want to do. And as they do it, they make terrible decision after terrible decision. And coming alongside the kings, coming and talking to them and speaking to them are these men of God that God has given a word to. And we call them the prophets. And prophet just means that they spoke, spoke forth the truth of God. And as they're telling the kings, that's a bad decision. That's a bad decision. The message that the prophets have over and over and over Again, is this simple message that says when you live in rebellion to God, pain will follow. 
And you have these prophets going, Isaiah to the king and saying, if you rebel, pain will follow. Jeremiah going to the kings, if you rebel, pain will follow. In fact, you could sum up a good portion of judges through the end of the Old Testament, which is most of the Old Testament. In fact, if you want to go back to Exodus through the end of the Old Testament or even to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to the end of the Old Testament, the point of the Old Testament is this rebel against God and pain will follow. And so the kings rebel. They move away from God, they move the nation away from God, and they find their nation attacked, they find themselves diseased, they find their families destroyed, and they find themselves paying tribute to other nations as they've been taken over by them. You see, the problem with autonomy without accountability is it often leads to rebellion, which leads to pain. Now here's what I want to say to us. My guess is nobody in this room is ever going to be king over in a country of their own. If somebody is, you can let me know. All right. But every one of us want exactly what the kings of this day want. We just don't always have the ability to do it. We wish we could have autonomy without accountability. I want to be able to make my own decisions, not based on financial concerns or job concerns or I want autonomy without accountability. I don't want anybody watching over me. I don't want anybody telling me that's right, that's wrong. I don't want anybody judging me. I don't want anybody looking into my life. It's my life. It's my privacy. Keep out of it. Stay out of it. I don't want it. And the problem is, we're just like the kings that we make terrible decisions when that is our desire and we rebel. And rebellion leads to pain. Now, most of us think, even in the midst of that, well, I can manage the consequences. I understand there may be some consequences. I can manage them. But what we find is things begin to snowball. And before we know it, the consequences are out of control and we can't do anything about it. Can I just tell you that rebellion leading to pain is one of those lessons that every one of us has to learn sometime in life. And one of the things that I hope to teach my children and I don't mean it just in kind of a, a way that I just want to show discipline and have them disciplined. I want them to realize that the, the reality of life is when you rebel, pain will follow. And if I don't teach them that, a teacher or a principal is going to teach them that. An employer is going to teach them that. Or a guy driving a car with blue lights on top is going to teach them that. Man, part of my goal in parenting is is not to be the mean parent, but to make them realize that part of God's law is that rebellion leads to pain. I, I don't want them in any way to think that rebelling brings positive things. What we have today is a story that demonstrates the reality of rebellion leading to pain. We're going to look today at a story, and I want to set this up in just a minute, but if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Now let me tell you what we're, what's going to happen here today, alright? 
I told you earlier that the stories of the kings is told in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles and the prophets. And so today's story, to get a full picture of the story, we're actually going to have to look at three different books. We're going to have to look at 2nd Chronicles, 2nd Kings, and then the prophet who was speaking to him. What I want us to see is that this principle of rebellion leading to pain and God's judgment is throughout the life of the kings, even until the last king. This is the last sermon in this series, and so there's no better way to end than to talk about the last king. And let me tell you this, he didn't realize he was going to be the last king. In this case, God didn't count to three. You know what I'm talking about there? Any of you parents ever use the count to three? I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters, 2.863842. You hope that you get your kids trained that when you say one, but you know, that don't happen, right? Not always. It's one of those cases when God doesn't count the three, he brings the judgment. So we're going to look at the life of Zedekiah. I know you all know the story, but we'll look at it again, right? Zedekiah, one of the most popular kings in all of Scripture. He's the last one. But let me set it up. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 we're going to look at. Let me set it up just to let you know what's happened here. A major event in world history. One of those that has been confirmed in multiple sources and is told about in Scripture. Happened in 597 B.C., 600 years before Jesus came. This uh, the world power at that time was a power called Babylon. The king of Babylon was king. Anybody know? Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's what the VeggieTales taught us all. Nebuchadnezzar was there. And King Nebuchadnezzar was ruling with an iron fist. And one of the places he decided should come under his control was Jerusalem and Judah. By this time, the northern kingdom, if you remember the story, there's the northern and southern kingdom, has been gone for almost 200 years. It's been wiped out, been taken over by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And so King Nebuchadnezzar zeroes in and says, I'm going after them. Now, here's the reason he's going to go really go after them. He had made them kind of a colony, let them do whatever they wanted to do, act like they wanted to act, worship like they wanted to worship. He said, as long as you send me money, taxes, I'm going to be okay. And they decided one of the kings, actually Zedekiah's dad, Jehoiakim, another great name there for a kid, right? Jehoiakim says, I'm not paying the tax. Not going to do it. It's over. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, you're not going to pay the tax. We're going to come and get you. And so they go in, they go into the city. They destroy the wall almost completely. They go into the temple. They raid all of the holy things of God out of the temple. They destroy much of the villages and they take captive the king. Now, they take the king back, but they don't just take the king back. After they leave this place in wreckage and turmoil, they also decide that anybody that's making over a certain amount of money or has a certain amount of assets, so basically the upper class, he says, we're going to take the upper class and we're going to move them to Babylon. Pack up your stuff, get your SUVs, we're going. And then he looks and says, not only that, we're going to take at least half of the middle class. And so you, if you're in the middle class, you come on, you're going too. And I need your best and brightest young people. We're taking those with you. Oh, and we're going to take your entire army. And they're all going to Babylon. So imagine being a part of this nation when you have been to your, your Your uh, capital has been destroyed. The wall has been destroyed. Your holy place has been raided. And your wealthiest, brightest, best 
leadership has been taken back. Now, he takes the king, he puts him in stocks, golden chains, and he leads him back. Now, here's the reason Nebuchadnezzar did that. Anybody here ever collect anything? Stamps, baseball cards. I, I collected baseball cards when I was a kid. Apparently, that's not even a thing anymore. All right? When I was a kid, I had a collection of baseball cards going to be worth like $250,000. It's worth three fifty right now, like $3.50, all right? Worth nothing. Nebuchadnezzar collected kings like people collect stamps. In fact, when they would be having a party at his house, at his palace... He, he would, you know, they'd have the food and they'd have the drink and they'd be having a good time and they'd be having a party. When the party would start to lull, he goes, wait a minute, I got a special surprise for you. Open up the doors. Here's my collection of kings. And he would parade out in front of people the kings that he had captured and brought back to Babylon. And Jehoiakim is one of them now. So Jerusalem, Judah, all their best taken away, their wealthiest taken away. Completely devastated. And on the throne, on the throne, goes King Zedekiah, personally appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. And he gave him three rules. The three rules were simply this. Don't make an army. Don't rebuild the walls and pay your taxes. And we'll leave you alone. That's it. Don't rebuild the wall, pay your taxes, and don't build an army. Nebuchadnezzar takes his people, takes the people he's captured, and he leaves. The new king has a guy that he knows that's a prophet, says he speaks for God, so he calls him in. The guy's name, you may have heard him, is Jeremiah. And he says to Jeremiah, what should I do? And Jeremiah says, listen, here's what's going on. Here's what I think. He said, God is punishing us. He is disciplining us. We've been bad. God's giving us discipline. We should take our medicine. We should take it, not say a word, just accept it and be done. What do you think Zedekiah did? Not that. Look at chapter 36 of Second Chronicles, starting in verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. There's the first problem. Right there. Anybody here ever tried to reason with a 21-year-old? Right? Have you read all the studies out there that your prefrontal lobe cortex, vertex, vortex, whatever it is up there, is not fully developed until your mid-20s? Anybody read those? Anybody have personal experience seeing a 20-year-old make decisions? You know what that means? It means they do not think through the consequences of their action before they take an action. And we all said... Amen. I'm not talking about your kids. I'm talking about you. You remember when you were 20, 21, right? Some of you are like, yeah, my kids. No, not you. you all right. Some of you are like, I'm 21 right now. I think I think clearly. I know you do. But he was 21 when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. Verse 12. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. Now, let's stop there for a minute. This is the worst thing that can be said about a king. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't humble himself when Jeremiah came and said, just accept the discipline, just take it, 
just let it happen. In fact, Jeremiah said, if you will take the discipline, humble yourself, take the discipline, God. And, and then if you will tell the people to turn back to God, if you will lead people to turn back to him, then God will restore us as a nation. But don't do it through fighting. Don't do it through might. Don't do it through force. Don't do it through opposition. Do it through humbling yourselves and less trusting the Lord and taking care of what he's asked you to take care of. Because he didn't do that. He chose not to do that, so he did evil. And then it says this in verse 13. Here's something else I found, by the way. When we're in rebellion to God, we make stupid decisions. Amen? Worst decisions of my life were always made in those moments when I was walking in a direction God didn't intend for me to walk. Look at verse 13. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. Let me just say, anytime the phrase starts with he also rebelled, it's probably not got a good ending. Who made him take an oath in God's name. And then this this picture, he became stiff necked, hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord God of Israel. So he comes to this place. Where he not only decides he's not going to do what God asked him to, he makes the worst possible decision he could make in deciding to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. I was trying to think of a way to describe what he decided to do. Because this is Judah. It's a tiny little thing in the Babylonian Empire. And the best I could come up with was this. I tried to think of the most um, small town, sounding town in Tennessee. And we got a lot of them, right? You, know, you all got suggestions. I heard them, all right? I came up with frog jump. Anybody ever been to frog jump? How many of you been to frog jump? Good to know. It's me. All right, that's it. Frog jump's a cute little place right over there by Curve, Nankipoo, and Arp. It's right there near Gold Dust. Uh, it's a beautiful place in West Tennessee. It would be like the citizens of frog jump deciding they were going to secede from Tennessee and do it through military conflict. Now, I know if you've ever been to Frog Jump, what you'd probably be thinking is, but they got a lot of guns in Frog Jump. And they do. I mean, everybody there's got guns, all right? But when you compare the guns in Frog Jump to the military might of the state of Tennessee, there's no comparison. And so for King Nebuchadnezzar, he looks at this little town of Hickville, Podunk, nowhere, Judah, and says, What are you doing? So when it says he rebelled, this is how he rebelled. He decided he'd get an army together. They would stop paying their taxes and they would rebuild the wall. Otherwise, he was three for three. And when all that starts to happen, Jeremiah comes back to him and says, King, that was a really bad decision. Word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody want to guess what Nebuchadnezzar does? He sends a part of his army out there to see what's going on. The army gets out there. It's just a part of the army. They surround the city. And the king Zedekiah goes, what in the world do I do, Jeremiah? What do I do now? I've got us in trouble. The army's out. They're here. I know you said they would do it. What do I do? And he says, here's what you do. He said, just walk out. Open the gates wide. Walk out into the middle. Get on your knees before this army and say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I should not have rebelled against you. And I should not have rebelled against my God. Anything you want to do, we're fine. And Jeremiah says, if you will do that, God will honor it. And this army will honor it. it, And everything will be okay. And Zedekiah says, 
No. And so for the next few days, they wait and they wait and they wait for something to happen. And one morning they wake up and they look out. And what do they see out there in the midst? The army is leaving. And they all get excited. They start jumping up. Now, this is amazing. In fact, they get around the wall and they start banging on the wall. And they start that they're rebuilding and they start joining, uh, shouting for joy. They're leaving. They're leaving. They're leaving. And Zedekiah calls in Jeremiah and says, the I told you so moment of look what happened. This is amazing. What happened? Can you believe what happened? And Jeremiah says, it's not over. What do you mean it's not over? They're leaving. I told you we stood firm. We stood our ground. God has saved us. No, God didn't save you because you didn't repent. It's not over. Jeremiah said, they're coming back. He goes, I don't know why they're leaving. They're coming back. Came to find out a little bit later that the Egyptians had attacked them on the other side. And Nebuchadnezzar had to use some of his troops to defend against the Egyptians. Just when the people of Judah are getting settled in again that everything is okay. Jeremiah starts telling them that they need to surrender and repent, that it's coming again. Now, in fact, this is what happens to Jeremiah. He starts walking around the city. Do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about a sandwich board? Like one of those things you put on top of you and it's got things written on it, right? He's walking around the city with a sign that says surrender and repent. And he's walking through the city just yelling that surrender and repent. Judgment is coming. He he would walk up to people that were in this newly enlisted army and he would say to them, listen, you've been in the army is a really bad idea. God's about to judge our nation. And the first people that are going to be killed is you that are in the army. So if I were you, I would get out of the army. Now, when you're the king and you built an army, you don't want that happening. So he told him to shut up and he said, no. He can't figure out any other way to do it. So he goes and he takes ropes and they tie him underneath Jeremiah's arms. And Jeremiah was getting older in his life at this time. And they feed him down into an abandoned well. It it gets to the bottom and it's, it's no longer a working well, but... It's up to his knees in mud. And what Jeremiah does at the bottom of the well is just lift his face up and yell, surrender and repent. In fact, there's this kind of funny thing. People walking by start going, why is the cistern talking to us? Is that a well talking? So the king realizes he can't do anything with Jeremiah. He pulls him up out of the well. He puts him in prison and says, quit talking about it. And everybody is like, see, it's not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And one day they wake up and what do you think they see on the horizon? It's not a part of the army. It's the whole army of Babylon. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands are gathered around. Look at Second Kings chapter 25. You don't have to turn there. I think we've got it on the screen. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day, it's important to remember that ninth year, all right? On the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. Let me tell you what happened there. They get there and they build their own wall around the outside of the entire city. And they have got legions of soldiers at every possible post. Now, why in the world would you build a wall around a city you're trying to destroy? You're cutting it off from everything outside. 
And so when he comes back, he comes back meaner, angrier, and out for more than just a simple destruction. He literally is going to starve them to death. Look at the next next verse. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. All right. right. When did it start? Ninth year. When did it end? 11th. For two years, they were entrapped by this army. Conditions got so bad inside the city that Scripture tells us that they ate anything that moved. Starving to death. Cannot figure a way out of this. And in the midst of that time, Zedekiah comes back to the guy that he put in prison and says, Okay, I kind of messed up here. What do I need to do? And Jeremiah, with a word from the Lord, tells him. And this is, you can write this down over in Jeremiah thirty-eight seventeen. Looks at him and basically says, If you would do what I told you to do from the beginning. This is what the Lord God Almighty says, the God of Israel. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared. The city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. Jeremiah's words to him are basically, I said earlier, God didn't count to three. Here's the truth. God did. And this is God's two and a half moment. You got one shot. You got one chance. Open up the doors, walk out there, get on your knees and surrender. You will be spared. Your city will be spared. Your family will live. Anybody want to guess what Zedekiah did? Not that. Back in Second Kings chapter 25, it tells us that he suddenly decided that he would stand firm in the midst of it. 2 Kings 25, starting in verse 3. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for people to eat. The city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding, and I want you to think about this, this is how desperate they were. You're an army and you flee knowing that you're running directly into the Babylonian army. They fled toward Arabah is what it tells. But the Babylonian army pursued the king. Who's the king? Zedekiah. Overtook him in the plains of Jericho and all his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. And he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar of Ribble, when his sentence was pronounced on him. And then look what happens in verse 7. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he became part of the king's collection of Nebuchadnezzar. It tells us that after this happened in verse 9, as the prophecy says, that a group of men went back to the temple of the Lord. They set fire to the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building in Jerusalem was burned. It's a pretty dramatic story, right? 
I mean, this is not one with a happy ending. There's no, <laughs> there's no just when you think it's over, the guy comes back or Rocky's on the mat about to die, get a hit and he jumps back up and he wins the fight. This is not one of those we think it's over and then something amazing happens, at least not yet. And it all teaches this simple point that rebellion leads to pain. Now, my guess is it hasn't been that dramatic in your life, although at times it feels like it is. But we have all experienced those moments in our lives and maybe you are there right now when you're in rebellion to what God intends for you to do. Maybe you don't even know what that means. You don't know what it means what God wants you to do. But you know that you've walked away and your life, although he allows it to kind of continue for a little bit and God does the one, two Two and a half, because he is a gracious and merciful and loving God. Maybe you've let it kind of linger there, but you realize that the time is coming when he's going to hit three and the pain and the circumstances are going to be unbearable. The consequences are going to be beyond your control. And you are worried consistently about what if it gets uncovered? What if it gets unwrapped? What if somebody finds out? What if my spouse finds out? What if my wife finds out? My husband finds out? What if my boss finds out? What if my friends found out? What if my church knew? And you know that you're on that track where the rebellion is leading to pain. And you've been in church services or you've been reading scripture, or you've been listening to the radio or you talked to a friend. And just like Jeremiah spoke into the life of Zedekiah many, many times and says, repent, humble yourself, turn back to the Lord. You've heard that message over and over and over again. And maybe you've made one little start or a little start here, or made a decision there, or thought about it here, or decided to do this here, but you haven't made a commitment to it. You haven't turned your life around. You haven't allowed God to work through you. And as a result, you have just found yourself going further and further and further down that road of rebellion. And the pain is getting worse and worse and worse. And nobody may see it. Nobody may know it. Nobody in your circle, your inner circle, or even the closest ones that know you know what's happening but it feels like that life is beginning to come down upon you and you are consistently thinking about the pain that is coming from your choices of rebellion when you read the old testament sometimes you read it and you think man I mean, when God delivered punishment, he delivered punishment. I mean, the, the details of this story can you imagine sitting there and your sons now I've got two sons and one of the worst things I could ever imagine happening in my life is having them killed before my eyes and then taking my eyes out. So the last image I have is of that. You read that kind of stuff and you think, why does it have to be so intense? Why does it have to be so strong? Why does it have to be so gory? Why does it have to feel so wrong? And here's the simple answer. It's because God cared too much about the nation of Israel to let them continue to live in rebellion. And as difficult as it sounds and as tough as it is to take, that moments like this were God's attempt to bring them back to Him. And in your life, there will be moments when God will allow and God will send things in your life to remind you of the fact that you are living in rebellion. And in those moments, we need to remember that God disciplines those that he loves. I heard a pastor this week says, if God did not spare his own son for your salvation, what makes you think he will spare your wealth, your health, your career when it comes to getting you back on track.
Sometimes God has to allow things to happen in our lives in order for us to realize the severity of our walking away from Him. In the New Testament, there's a particularly poignant passage of Scripture that happens in the last book in the whole Bible. John, who had walked with Jesus, has a vision of the Lord when he's on the island of Patmos. And in Revelation chapter 3, he's writing letters to these churches. And it just strikes me as interesting because I keep having this image in the uh, Old Testament story we just read of, of Jeremiah basically saying, just open up the door and let him in. Surrender, humble yourself and let him in and everything will be okay. In Revelation chapter 3, Verse 19 in the letter he wrote to the Laodicean church. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And then he gives this image. Here I am. I'm standing at the door and knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens that door, just open the gates Humble yourselves. I'll come in and eat with him and they with me. There's some of you here today that God, through your friends, through Bible reading, through this sermon, through something, is knocking on that door. Maybe you're not like Zedekiah and you look out your window and the armies are encircling. Or maybe in your life that's exactly what it feels like. But God is saying today is the day to surrender to be humble and to come to a place where you once again follow me. So here's what I'm going to ask you today. Where's your pain? What is it that God's allowing in your life or steering in your life to make you recognize your need to return to Him? Let's pray together.